0: So, we're in the middle of this, well not in the middle, we're at the front end of this season of Lent. And I thought just because I know that we come from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different understandings and a lot of different pictures, I thought I'd just kind of get us all on the same page because where we're going over the next five weeks is going to be kind of wrapped up in our understanding of of Easter and of this season. And we're in the traditional kind of church calendar in the season of Lent. And now... Lent is actually—it's uh, an old English word. An old English comes from an old English term that means lengthening. And basically, the season of Lent takes place when in the spring, when the days are getting longer. Um, Lent is the forty days before Easter, not counting Sundays. All right. So those forty days lead us to the, the first kind of part of the season, which usually falls on, which always falls on a Wednesday, called Ash Wednesday. And, and Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of this season—the forty days minus Sundays—to get us to Easter. And traditionally, the church calendar, the idea is that everything is driving us towards the resurrection. Everything is pointing us towards that. Now, a lot of us have different understandings of Lent. Some of us grew up in backgrounds where Lent means I've got to give something up or, or, you know, I'm going to give up chocolate so I lose weight for Jesus this year or whatever that is, you know. We give up those things. We think that maybe if I surrender some things, I can get a little something out of it too and, you know, and, and I sacrifice and I'm reminded that Jesus sacrificed and, you know, the Bible really never explicitly says anything about any of that. A lot of that is wrapped up in tradition. There's nothing inherently wrong or, or, or right with it. The idea simply is that what Lent should do is it should drive us to the cross, which ultimately drives us to the resurrection. So whatever kind of happens during these 40 days, minus these Sundays, or these 45 plus days, whatever happens, it should be pushing us toward the reality of what it means to be a Christ follower, that the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Now, We all know that Easter is the single greatest day in all of human history, right? The day that Jesus was raised from the dead changes everything. Paul himself says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then every single thing I believe is an absolute and total vain. It is worthless. My whole life is worthless. The resurrection changes everything. It takes us from death to life. That if, if Jesus was just crucified and not resurrected, then everything that we've bought into, the entire reason we gather is a sham. It's a farce. So the, the resurrection is essential. It is the single greatest event in all of history. But in order to get to the resurrection, we have to go through the cross. Now for the past 13 weeks or, or so, although we skipped a bunch over Christmas, we really marched through the book of Ruth. We spent a lot of time in the Old Testament looking at the gospel, co- kind of, um, the gospel connections between the story of Ruth and, and what Jesus did for us. And, And and as I started thinking about this season and our our coming out of the Old Testament for all those weeks, I thought, you know what, it would be a really great time for us to just take five weeks leading up to Easter and just say, we are going to look expressly at the person and life of Jesus Christ. So for the next five weeks, I'm going to kind of teach through a little series on five truths about about the death of Christ, leading us to the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday. But for the next five Sundays, we're going to look at five truths about the death of Jesus. Now, a lot of times we don't want to really examine the death of Christ. We don't want to look too much towards the cross. Because frankly, most of us don't really like it. If we're really honest, the cross is a horrific thing. It was the single most awful device created by human hands. The Romans created the cross as a tool of humiliation and of horrific torture. That's why it was created. It was created to be a deterrent. That if you were an enemy of Rome, or if you were a criminal, what would happen is that we would nail you or strap you to this thing. Brutally beat you on the front end, and then hoist you 15 feet in the air and allow you to suffocate over the course of 3 to 7 days. While everybody who walked by could see you bleeding to death and gasping for breath, and all they would be thinking is, I don't want to do whatever that guy did. It was designed as an deterrent, and oftentimes they would put him right outside the city walls. So that everybody would come by that said, as long as this land is occupied by Rome, this is what the Romans do to those that oppose all that is of Rome. It was a horrific tool. We don't like to spend a lot of time there, frankly, and being totally honest. It's why I didn't go see the movie The Passion of the Christ. I know how it ends. Like, I can't see that. Because I don't want to imagine that horrific thing. And what I really don't want to imagine about that horrific thing is that, why my God? My God. The very God that breathed life into my lungs would die in my place. That horrific death. It's hard for us to think about God in that way. So we gloss over it and we get to Easter. But the reality is is that we can't get to Easter. We can't race to the tomb with Peter and John or stand amazed with Mary in that garden until we deal with the cross. Because the cross leads us to the resurrection and the resurrection leads us to life. So for the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack five truths about the cross, about the death of Jesus. And here's the reason why I think it's important. Because the cross is all about grace. Jesus died in our place. That you and I were due the penalty of our sin, but Jesus loved us enough to die voluntarily in our place. And that's the picture of grace. And we can't worship what we don't truly know or understand. And if we know and truly understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, it should drive us to real, authentic, passionate worship. And so my hope is that over the next five weeks as we explore these truths, these difficult, challenging, kind of deep truths, what it do is it would open up the power to be able to worship something and the God that we really, truly know. That if we understand what he really did for us, it would change the way that we sing songs. It would change the way that we feel on Sunday mornings. That if I really recognized what God did for me, that it would change the way that I see him and therefore would alter my worship. So my sort of agenda, if you will, in this five weeks is clarity, to provide clarity that would lead us to worship. So whatever you think you knew about the death of Jesus, right, I want you to hang on to because we're going to try and open that up a little bit and explore some very specific truths. So this morning, we're going to step into the first truth. And the first truth is this, the death of Jesus was for his enemies. Truth number one, death of Jesus was for his enemies. Now I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 5 if you got it. And a lot of this stuff is going to be a little deeper than we may kind of normally go. Not a lot of like parable storytelling and Jesus' love, but really some deep, important theological things that are unfolding around the death and crucifixion of Christ. So get your Bible open to Romans chapter 5, we'll look at verse 6. There's about, oh, I don't know, four-ish, maybe I'll find another one in there, things that I want you to understand about this first truth, that the death of Jesus was for his enemies. Let's pray before we open God's word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. I thank you for the men and women and young people that you have brought into this building. Lord, we recognize that our opportunity to meet with you today is, is an incredible one. Lord, any any time that we get to gather together as a community and open your word is a special time. This is no ordinary Sunday because every time we come together, it's extraordinary. God, when we gather in your presence, it's extraordinary. And Lord, I pray that this Sunday morning what we'd encounter is the resurrected Jesus. That as we open your word, you would would open our hearts to new things about you. Clarity and understanding what you did for us. Take a moment and just, just pray in your own heart. Ask God to... To really open your heart to something new this morning. Just maybe that's all. God, open my heart to something new. Pray for someone behind you or in front of you or around you or your spouse or anyone. Just be in the habit of praying for someone else this morning. Pray that God would move in their life. God, we pray that you would do something uh, mighty in our hearts this morning. God, that you would teach us something powerful about, about the death of Jesus that would ultimately lead us to the promise of life eternal. And we ask this in your perfect and holy name. Amen. So a little bit of a disclaimer, like I said, it's getting, this is a little bit deeper perhaps than some of the stuff that we may do, but I think it's important and, and my disclaimer is this, I, I'm not going to emotionally manipulate the cross to make you feel really bad, right? I mean that's, a lot of times we think that's what we hear when we hear pastors or preachers get up and they talk about Jesus and I feel really bad because Jesus was beaten and he was flogged and he was all these things and I'm emotionally moved. I'm not going to talk about any of this from an emotional standpoint. I'm going to talk about it from a sort of a reality and a truth standpoint and a theological standpoint that says these are the truths about what happened. So I'm not going to go through and explain all the details that go into the process and walk through that Friday and kind of go in graphic detail about what it meant to be flogged and how Jesus did da 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 da, right? I'm going to approach it from a different standpoint. I'm going to say, what are the truths that actually theologically surround this incredible event. Because that's what should change us. If we really understand not just what Christ went through, but what it means, what God was doing, it should change the way that we think about who he is, and ultimately change our worship. So, Romans chapter 5, there's a bunch of places we could begin here, but I want to begin in in 5 and 6, chapter 5, verse 6. First truth is this, the death of Jesus was for his enemies. Alright, so listen to this, Romans uh, 5, 6, we'll go down through the end of 10. You see, that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So here, and in a couple other places in scripture, we learn a a real significant but important truth. And that's this. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. All right. Now we don't like to talk about that much. We don't like to think about that all that much. We like to think about it in terms of, we just sort of somewhat disappoint God with our sinful behavior, our attitudes, or who we are, our nature. But the reality is that Scripture actually tells us something very important and very strong. The Scripture actually tells us that we are God's enemies. We are not lovely, we are not beautiful, we are absolute enemies of God. Us towards God and God towards us. Because of the sin in our life, we are enemies. Colossians 1 puts it this way, Once we are alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of our evil and sinful behavior. We are God's enemies. You are God's enemy. I am God's enemy. Without Christ in my life, we are enemies of God. And it's put very strongly because it's a very strong truth. God is perfect and holy and majestic, and you and I are none of those things. And because God is all of those things, and we are everything the opposite of that with our sinful nature, we are enemies at God's. Our very natures are at war. Paul tells us that what rules our heart is our sinful nature. It's what is at waging war with inside me against all that God is. We are God's enemies. So when Paul says that when we were God's enemies, he's referring to you and I. He's talking to a group of Roman believers before they knew Christ, saying, Before you knew Jesus, before Christ came into the picture, you were an enemy of God. Period. All there is to it. And because we're enemies of God, we are subject to God's wrath. That's just the truth. Paul says it. He says that before when we were enemies to God, we were subject to God's wrath. The entire New Testament paints this picture. Now I know you're sitting there going, man, Trev, we don't really use that word a lot. I mean, I didn't realize we were Baptists or whatever and it's hell and fire and brimstone and all those kind of things. You're trying to scare us into heaven or, or whatever your thought is or whatever your issues are with church growing up. But the truth is, is that just because we don't like it doesn't make it any less true. We are subject to God's wrath because we are enemies of God. Scripture is very explicit. There will be a day, and I'll talk about this in a moment, we have to stand in account for all of our actions and behavior. And God in His perfect, holy, just self has promised, because of who He is, that His wrath will fall on those that are His enemies. The death of Jesus was for his enemies, and the first truth wrapped up in that truth is this, that you are an enemy of God apart from Jesus. I am an enemy of God, and therefore we are subject to God's wrath. Now nobody likes to hear that, because here's what we like to think. We like to think that God is just sort of somewhat disappointed in our behavior and our action, and he sort of laughs up our sin, laughs up our sin a little bit as our our little bit of a youthful exuberance. And as long as we feel really bad about it, and about the time we get married and have kids come back to church, then God's kind of just okay with it. That's what we want. We want a God that doesn't detest and hate our sin, but a God that looks at it and says, oh, it's okay, I will forgive you, just come back to church when you get it all put together. God does not laugh at our sin. The Bible tells us that He hates it, He detests it. In everything that He is. We are His enemy. And it's very strongly worded. And there's no way around it. We are enemies of God without Christ. And because of that, we are subject to God's wrath. Now listen to this. There's a couple of truths about that state that we're in. So the state of being an enemy, right? We are an enemy of God. There's a few things that God says that means. Look at verse 6. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Goes down to verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Three things that we see define an enemy of God. Powerless. What this means is that you are in no power of your own. You have no ability of your own to rectify the situation. To decide today, that, you know what, today I'm not going to be an enemy of God. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to start living right. I'm going to make no more bad choices. I'm going to do things correctly and I'm going to leave my life of sin, take control and power of my life, and fix this thing. The Bible says you're powerless. You are an enemy of God, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do about it. You're hopeless. That's just the truth of Scripture. We are powerless. It means you cannot do it on your own. It means that you cannot continue to try and keep cleaning up your life so that one day God will be proud of you. You cannot try and just fix those things so that God will love you more and overlook those things you don't want him to see. That if you just clean up the outward side of your life, that dirty, nasty part of your heart, God will, he won't cast a care on. You have no power. An enemy of God is powerless. Enemy of God is powerless. Think about how that plays out in scripture. Has an enemy of God ever won anything? Well, God is ultimately all-powerful. You are powerless as his enemy. He is the ultimate victor. So you're powerless. You can't rectify the situation. It goes on to say that you are ungodly. No surprise there. If we are powerless, and enemy, and we are full of sin, then it's natural to think that we are also not like God in any way. Ungodly just means that we are in no way like God. We are ungodly. God is majestic and holy and powerful and perfect. And you are an enemy, and I am an enemy, and we are wrecked and broken and sinful. And we are ungodly. We are not like God. Okay? Pretty simple. God is, we are, we are powerless and we are ungodly. He goes on to say that, that while we were still in that state, we were sinners. Not I was sinful, but I am an active, engaging, living sinner, even in this moment, that I am a sinner. This is what it means to be an enemy of God. I am powerless, I am ungodly, and I am sinful. This is the lamest sermon ever, man. I'm telling you, I didn't come to church and be like, dude, Trev, enemy of God. Got God's wrath coming my way. Powerless, ungodly, and simple. You guys go in peace. Have a great Sunday, right? But things turn, right? Because here's the deal, right? First two points are the reality of where we are. But I told you the first truth of that is this, right? The death of God was for his enemies. What I'm trying to do is help you understand who you really are. Because the truth is that most of us don't want to think about our lives this way. We think we're inherently good with a few bad things, The truth is, Bible tells us that we're inherently awful with no good things, right? We are enemies of God, powerless, ungodly, and sinful, and we are due God's wrath. End of story. But, greatest word in all of Scripture, by the way, always the greatest word. Anytime you see in Scripture that God uses the word but, it is something amazing is always coming. But the, the other two points I want you to see are where things begin to turn. Because the death of Christ was for His enemies. So, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So, here's what he says. While you were in the middle of this awful, this ungodly, this powerless, this sinful state, while you were right in the middle of that, sinning and living as opposite of God as you could possibly be, God demonstrates his love for you. We're going to talk, and one of the truths we're going to talk about is a demonstration of love in a few weeks, so I'm going to skip over that. But God demonstrates his love. In the middle of your helpless, hopeless, my helpless, my hopeless, dying, sinful, wrath, kind of deserving state, Jesus dies for us. And that death does two things. It says it right there in verse 9. The first one is that Jesus' death justifies us. You know what the word justify just means to make right with. That Jesus' death on the cross justifies us. That when we surrender our lives to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. That I believe that you are the son of God and you died and gave your life for me. When I surrender that and God's, God's kind of love washes over me. When Jesus becomes my personal Lord and Savior, I am justified. Meaning I am made right with God right here and right now. It means that my sin and my garbage has been set free and I've been promised an authentic, real life in Christ. Jesus himself says it in John 10, 10, where he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and have it now to the full. Real life, justified life now. It means that with Christ, when we become Followers of Christ, when we become saved, when we engage in this life-saving relationship with Jesus, you are justified at this moment. Not just for some future thing, but right now, your life changes. Eternal life, as I always say, begins now. Justified. One time in history, set free, your life has been. Just, boom, cleansed. Paul says it this way. He says that since we have now, right now, been justified by his blood, meaning that because of all of our sinfulness, the death of Jesus, the blood shed on the cross covers our sinfulness, that because of that, we have been made right with God. See, you couldn't do it. Absolutely powerless. I could not do it. No amount of showing up, doing church, reading my Bible, acting nice, not cussing, all those things could get me any closer. God had to do it for me through Christ, and we became justified. So the death of Christ does, does a couple of things, and our total enemy state justifies us. But it also does a second thing. How much more, in verse 9, shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So we have this justification that takes place right now. But there's also part of our salvation that takes place in the future. Now hear me say this. The Bible is very clear. There will be a day where all of us have to stand and account before God. A day of awful reckoning. All of Scripture talks about it. There will be a moment where we stand before God and our entire lives are laid bare. And we have to be an account for every single thought, action, and deed. Paul says the reason that his followers of Christ don't tremble at that thought is because the death of Jesus is the promise that saves us. That we no longer have to be fearful of standing before God. That when we stand before God, we have a mediator in Christ who covers us and saves us. The death of Jesus does two things. It gives us real abundant life here on earth, now justified, made right with God, set free from that life of garbage, able to follow him because of the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, right now justified. But also, it's the promise of salvation, that there will be a day, like it or not, where we have to stand before God and the believer does not live in fear because we trust that that eternal salvation comes at that moment. Now, a lot of times, we just sort of think those are things that are all rolled together. And, and, and on some, some level, they are. But the truth is, they're different events. There's a promise that says, not only have you been given life here and now, but there's a promise of salvation to come. Now, if you're anything like me, kind of last thing I'll get into this morning before we kind of dive into communion is, is really this. If you're anything like me, at some point in time, you've had a thought that's been somewhat petrifying. Maybe it hasn't, like, seized you in fear, but maybe you've just allowed it to trickle in your head, and that's this. How can I be sure? I mean, really. I mean, I believe that God is real. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But, but how can I be sure that when I really die, that when I die, I actually will really be in heaven? I mean, where's my confidence? And yours may roll around in a different thought process, but I'm sure at some level, someplace, you've had that thought. How can I be sure? What if if I get there, and and even though I gave my life to Christ when I was in the seventh grade at camp, and and, and I did all that, and I kind of made some mistakes along the way, and I'd go back to this, and I'd go back to that, and I went there, and and then I got it all together, and how do I know that when I get there, God's not going to say, look, it just wasn't good enough? How do I know that? How am I eternally confident? This last few verses, to me, are, are one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. And it really is built around this idea of eternal significance, eternal confidence. And this is what Paul says. We'll read verse 9 and 10 together. Since we've been justified, which he just talked about, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now listen to verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, if in your worst state, as an enemy of God, as a powerless, ungodly, sinful person, if in that state, through the blood of Jesus, God has reconciled you, and we're going to talk about reconciliation, that means that God has brought you back to harmony with Himself. God has reconciled you. If in that awful, horrific, ungodly, sinful, wrath-deserving state, God has rescued you and brought you back to Him, how much more, now being His friend, will He promise To save you. See, if Jesus did this for us in our awful state, now that we have been justified, how much more can we rest assured in the confidence that now that we are friends of God, His promised salvation is true. Now if you think about that for a moment, it's pretty powerful. If God saved me as an enemy of His and calls me now His friend, literally His brother, brothers with Christ, co-heirs, This is what God calls me, beloved, redeemed, rescued. If God did all that and he calls me that, how much more can I be secure in my salvation now that I'm called his friend? That's what Paul's saying. Because all these guys in in Rome and girls, they were wrestling with that, saying, okay, we we trust in Jesus, but how do we know when we get to heaven that we're really saved? And Paul says, you know, because Jesus rescued you from your worst state and now he calls you his friend, how much more will he fight and save you now? Fight for you and save you. This is what's called the doctrine, right, of the perseverance of the saints. Eternal security. The idea being that you cannot lose your salvation. Now a lot of people will tell you that that once you've given your life to Christ, you have surrendered your heart, you have been changed from an enemy of God to literally his beloved, his friend, that you have been justified. That if you don't live correctly, that somehow you can lose that salvation. There is no more absurd teaching. The truth is what Paul's teaching is that nothing once you've been justified by God, can take you from his hand. That he has declared you, and he has promised, and God keeps his promises. And therefore, on that day of reckoning by which we will all stand, we can rest eternally secure and confident. Scripture points to the fact that once we have been justified, there's no going back. Even if we live in mistake-filled, sinful lives like our nature lead us, we have been covered by the blood of Jesus, and we can rest in our eternal security. And we can quit living in fear and start living a life that says, God, I want to live in response to how and what you did for me. Eternal confidence. Nothing will take you out of God's hands. If he fought for you, died for you, saved you as his enemy, calls you his friend, how much more, Paul says, will his future glory be to save you? Confidence. The death of Christ was for his enemies. You and I, apart from Jesus, are enemies of God. Like it or not, we are due His wrath. That is just truth. We are powerless to do it on our own. We are ungodly, nothing like Him. And we are active and engaging sinful people. But in that state, that broken, awful, ungodly, powerless state, God demonstrated His love. He said, this is what my love looks like. It's a picture. I will rescue you. I will rescue you. And he justifies us now. Covers us with the blood of Jesus. And then promises, because we've been justified, that on that day we will stand eternally secure. And what comes out of this for you and what comes out of this for me is this. I can live in confidence. Because I know that I have been saved. I trust that. Because I know what God did in me. And I know that I couldn't do it on my own. And therefore I rest in the promise that on that day, whatever day that is, when I stand before God, That I am not God's enemy, but that I have been justified by the blood of Jesus, and that I stand saved in the presence of God. Deep, powerful theological things, but incredibly true. This is what I'm talking about when I say why I want to bring about clarity to the cross. Because if we understand those truths, songs that we sing, they mean different things. When we say to the cross of Christ, I cling. When we sing songs that use those kind of words, do you realize what we're proclaiming? It's not just an act by which God says, oh, you know what? I think this will be the best thing. I'll just do this for all humanity and hope they get it. And God says, no, I'm doing something dramatic for the very enemies of who I am. And I'm going to rescue them. And you can't do it on your own. This is the driving heartbeat of worship. It's grace. It's grace. This table is really the kind of perfect picture of that. It it reminds us. It serves as the ultimate reminder of what took place. This is not a habitual kind of engagement that the church does because we should. The reality is this is a proclamation of everything I just said. That we were enemies in Christ. Had his body literally, literally broken for you. That his blood was shed for you to justify you and to promise eternal security. It's the picture of communion. It's what we engage in together. As we prepare to to take this meal together, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Have I ever really given my life to Christ? I mean, truly, Trevor, I hear you say all these things. I hear you talk about that, I've been coming for a few weeks, or maybe you haven't ever been to church at all. Maybe you've been hearing all this talk about Jesus. Have I ever truly just said, Jesus, I want that. I need that. I can't do it on my own. I want that and need to be rescued. This morning, if you've never engaged in that, if you've never surrendered your heart, we're going to give you the opportunity to just surrender your heart to Jesus, to experience His justifying, saving grace, both here, now, for abundant, real, made right with God life, and the confidence of eternal security to come. We're going to pray before we take our time of communion together, and I'm going to encourage you that if you feel God moving in your heart, just saying, just drawing you to himself, saying, I want you to make this surrender moment. I want you. I am calling you. I am moving in your life. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that, and I'm going to give you the chance as we pray to just sort of surrender your heart and life to Jesus this morning. Let's pray.